And I think that's very dangerous in a democracy to have a president who's willing to go to those lengths of calling the press the enemy of the people to be able to get his will across. I think there has been a continuing effort by the president to demean both the institutions of government and also private institutions that are part of our system, like the press, that has definitely affected the credibility of both governmental and non-governmental institutions. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi. Bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from a sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, my co-host Bob Ambrosi recently retired from Lawyer to Lawyer, and we are in search of guest co-hosts who can join me and other lawyers we have on the show to discuss our current legal topics. If you're an attorney and you're interested, please feel free to reach out to our producer, Kate Nutting, via email at kate at legaltalknetwork.com. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. And just this week on September 11th, the highly anticipated book, Fear, Trump in the White House by Bob Woodward was released. Woodward is a well-known author and associate editor at the Washington Post who has covered eight presidencies from Nixon to Obama and now Trump. So excerpts from the book were released to the public prior to its sale, describing chaos inside the walls of the White House, quotes from White House Chief of Staff John Kelly and Defense Secretary General Mattis describing the president in turn as an idiot and having the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader. Both have denied these comments about the president in response to the book. President Trump called it a joke. Well, on September 5th, the New York Times has recently also published an anonymous op-ed titled, I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration. The author, a senior official in the Trump administration, discusses the current state of affairs in the White House and their quest to protect the country. But we believe our first duty is to this country, and the president continues to act in a manner that is detrimental to the health of our republic. After the release of the op-ed, President Trump simply tweeted, treason, with a question mark. So are all of these words against President Trump libelous, even a threat to national security, or are they protected by the First Amendment? And will the president continue to wage a war against the press? So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss Bob Woodward's book, this recent anonymous New York Times op-ed from a senior official. Let's talk about the subjects of freedom of the press, the president-press relationship, and the political impact this could have on the presidency. So to do that, we've got a great lineup of guests today. Joining me is attorney George Freeman. He is the executive director of the Media Law Resource Center, a post he assumed in September 2014. Mr. Freeman was also an assistant general counsel of the New York Times Company for more than 20 years. During his time there, Mr. Freeman was at the forefront of numerous high-profile cases for the New York Times, including many involving libel, invasion of privacy, and other First Amendment issues. 
Welcome to the show, Attorney George Freeman. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And our next guest is Attorney Robert Corn Revere, a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. He specializes in First Amendment, Internet, and Communications Law. Bob also successfully petitioned Governor George Pataki to grant the first posthumous pardon in New York history to the late comedian Lenny Bruce in a landmark pro bono case. So welcome to the show, Attorney Bob Corn Revere. Thanks for having me, Craig. Well, George, let's start out with you. You've, your background, certainly, uh, having worked for the New York Times, is really apropos here. Can you give us a little bit of background on how the First Amendment interacts with the press and the presidency, and and what uh, a little bit of history, perhaps, about Bob Woodward and the Nixon issues, and, and now what we're seeing with Trump? Sure. Um, be happy to. Uh, you know, the president is a public official, and public officials in our country— uh, may sue for libel, but only really under certain circumstances, rather harsh circumstances, where they can prove that the publisher, uh, the reporter, wrote the article with serious doubts as to its truth. And uh, because that's a hard test, and it's a hard test intentionally so, because the Supreme Court wanted to incentivize discussion uh, and open-mindedness on, on, and debate on, on public issues, it's hard for a plaintiff to win, but that doesn't mean that they can't win. Uh, it only means that they can win if there's more than a small error, if there's more than a, a negligent error even, but if there is an intentional or uh, error that's caused by a reporter having serious doubts as to the truth, that he published something really without being confident that the, uh, the matter was correct. And uh, in these cases that you've mentioned, I think that would be awfully hard to prove, particularly with uh, author Bob Woodward, who I just was watching last night. Uh, uh, Eugene Robinson, who's a colleague at the Washington Post for decades, was talking about how meticulous he keeps all his notes, how meticulous he checks every fact. And with his reputation and with that amount of meticulousness, it would be really, really difficult with respect to the book to be able to successfully sue. And indeed, President Trump has threatened the suit in a number of occasions in his two years in office and hasn't followed through uh, once. So I don't expect that this will be any different. Well, Bob, what kind of the quotes that we're seeing inside the Woodward book about the chaos inside the Trump presidency, are those, those are all protected First Amendment speech, right? Uh, yes, they are. And uh, I don't think that it creates either uh, a defamation issue or a national security issue to quote someone who describes the president as an idiot. It may be unflattering and it may be something that uh, drives people inside the White House and the West Wing crazy, uh, which has set off a frenzy of looking for whoever it was that uh, wrote the op-ed piece. In that case, the direct quotes, and in the case of the Woodward book, quoting other people inside the administration. But all of that is protected speech. Given that it's protected, does Trump have any remedies? Is you know his uh, saying that it's a matter of national security that they find the person who wrote the op-ed uh, in the New York Times article? How does that sound? Let me let me explain why they've used the words national security because it really is disingenuous. <laughs> But I think I can tell you the reason. The reason is they want to find out who the op-ed writer was. Uh, that's very important to them because they want to fire the guy. And one can understand that. On the other hand, they're going to have a hard time doing that because at this point they can't even subpoena the, uh, the Times to say who their source was, much less win a subpoena battle. 
because there's no case, there's no investigation. And without a case or investigation, you can't subpoena the Times just because they're the president. So they need a case, they need an investigation. And the only way they can make the op-ed somehow into a criminal situation where a case or an investigation is appropriate is by saying that the Times broke national security, i.e. the espionage laws, in publishing that article, and therefore there can be an investigation or a case, and that would allow them to subpoena the Times and try to compel the Times to say where the article came from. The problem is the article has nothing to do about national security, and it's a huge stretch to say that this article somehow endangered national security. And their theory is going to be, it seems, from what they've said, that, geez, you know, if someone is being uh, not confidential about White House materials, as is clear from the article, maybe that person has been in meetings with about North Korea or Russia and therefore would be in position to leak uh, materials about and information about national security situations. And therefore, this is all a national security crisis, and therefore we would have the right to subpoena the Times. I think it's far-fetched. I think there's nothing in the article that touches on national security, really. But I think that's why they've bandied that word about. That's right. I think it's true that there's really nothing in the op-ed piece or anything that I've read so far in in the Woodward book. I don't claim to have been able to finish it yet that uh, would rise to that level. But I think that one of the reasons why the term national security is used is because it can be a very nebulous catch-all term used to justify investigations. And uh, I agree with George that there is not an ongoing proceeding or anything that would justify trying to get information on who the source was. In terms of the word treason, which has appeared in a Trump tweet so far, I think that's less an indication that there is any substance to a claim of treason than it is an indication that the president isn't entirely clear on what that word means. Uh, It seems to be attached to anything that would be described as critical of the president. He's used the term even in the context of suggesting that it could be treason if his Democratic um, members of Congress don't applaud with enough enthusiasm during the State of the Union address. So I wouldn't attach a particular significance to the use of that term in a presidential tweet. What kind of checks exist on President Trump's power when he asks the Attorney General Jeff Sessions to undertake an investigation here? Obviously, it's done with the bent of attacking a potential political enemy. Or is it? George? Well, I think so far, I mean, he's done this in a few situations, and Sessions hasn't uh, picked up the bait and hasn't started investigations that he's asked for, uh, you know, from Hillary to, I think, a couple of others over the last year. So uh, whatever one thinks about uh, the attorney general, he really is standing on the independent nature of the attorney general's office and not letting it become a stooge uh, or a gopher for the president, which is exactly what he should be doing. Uh, yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, while there may be demands for Department of Justice investigations, uh, that's not something that the president is going to be able to do on his own. It's unlike the situation where he is uh, directing that people withdraw security clearances from other former officials who have criticized him. Which he has authority to do himself, right? You would think he does. 
What do you think this does to the White House credibility? I mean, it seems like it's at an all-time low. Uh, President Obama, in his recent speech, came out and and, and criticized the person that wrote the op-ed speech, saying that it's really not the way you want your White House to work, people from the inside not supporting you. Where are we on what credibility is left in the White House? Well, I would answer that two ways. I would say, first, credibility is, I think, slowly, slowly eroding, uh, although he seems to keep uh, his base still seems to have confidence in him, notwithstanding all these disclosures. Uh, But the last poll I saw, his approval rating was 36, I think, which is lower than it's been over the last few months. But what worries me is not only uh, his credibility, which is not good for the country after all, but also the fact of what he's doing to the credibility of the press, which to me is an as important, if not more important, issue. And the fact is that he has made all sorts of legal threats against the press, opening up the libel laws and some of the things you've already mentioned, which haven't really come to fruition and, in my mind, aren't really all that important. They're kind of empty threats. But on the other hand, his daily filibustering and his daily blasts and blustering and bloviations against the press, I think, have taken a real toll in terms of the respect and credibility of the press. And that, to me, is the real problem, because he's doing that intentionally. It's not just that he's angry at the press. He's basically minimizing the respect of the press, because the press and the judiciary are the only two institutions that can block him. And as a businessman, he's not used to ever being blocked. Uh, And the Congress isn't blocking him because they seem too lame to do anything. But the other two institutions, the press and the uh, judiciary, can and have kind of blocked them and caused them trouble. And his strategy is to just demean them so that the public don't care about what they have to say and that he can then either ignore the attacks against them, uh, ignore what they have to say as to why what he's doing is wrong, and do what he wants and minimize the attacks on him in the first place. And I think that's very dangerous in a democracy to have a president who's willing to go to those lengths of calling the press the enemy of the people to be able to get his will across. Well, we've come to call the press as the fourth estate. Bob, what do you think the status of the press and the First Amendment is in terms of the rights of the media at this point? Has Trump been successful in demeaning them? Well, certainly it has had an effect for there to be constant attacks from the administration describing, as George said, the press as the enemy of the people. Uh, I think there has been a continuing effort uh, by the president to demean both the institutions of government and also private institutions that are part of our system, like the press. That has definitely affected the credibility of uh, both governmental and non-governmental institutions. I think there's no question that the way the president conducts himself has generally lowered the level of public discourse in the United States. And these recent developments are also going to feed into the kind of conspiracy theories that have, or that do underlie a lot of uh, the criticism that he makes. You know, there has been this constant reference to the deep state um, as undermining him. And here we have an op-ed by someone inside his administration saying that they are trying to dampen his worst impulses. Actually, that's not an example of the deep state. That's an example of the shallow state, I guess, with uh, members of his own team 
trying to uh, rein him in. But nonetheless, I mean, it's going to increase the level of criticism. Uh, it stands the possibility of increasing the possibility of him doing something rash either on his own or directing someone else to do that that could have uh, legal implications. But what that does to the credibility of the White House is anybody's guess. I mean, nothing in politics has been predictable in the last two years. And uh, as George pointed out, he does seem to have a base that is an irreducible number of somewhere in the low 30 percentile. And um, nothing seems to move that needle. And actually, I'd be very curious outside the, you know, the East Coast corridor to find out how the rest of the country is reacting to this. I originally come from rural Illinois myself, and I know that uh, being there during the time of Watergate was I'm sure very different in the way things were perceived than they were in New York or Washington. And uh, I'd, I'd be very interested in, in hearing uh, just how the rest of the country is reacting to news that we see as explosive and shattering, but may not be seen the same way elsewhere. Well, I don't know about the middle of the country. I went to law school in Iowa, and it's been a long time since I've been there. But on the West Coast, we kind of stare across the Mississippi River and think in the Potomac and say, when is this going to end? And who's going to stand <laughs> up and do something about it? <laughs> but maybe that takes us to our uh, point where we need to take a break here. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. We are joined here on Lawyer to Lawyer by attorney George Freeman. He's the executive director of the Media Law Resource Center and attorney Robert Corn Revere, a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Davis Wright Tremaine LLP. We've been discussing freedom of the press, Bob Woodward book, the recent anonymous New York Times article on President Trump from a senior official within his administration and the effect that it could have on the presidency. We, we've been discussing its effect on the press. George, what remedies does the press have at this point in terms of getting this monkey off their back? I don't want that's maybe not the right word to use, uh, in getting this, this kind of Trump off their back because they have constant criticism from him. Uh, are there any remedies in the law, or is this just simply a remedy in the public forum where perhaps uh, there have been some cries for not covering him and uh, reducing his effect? Where are we on how we can resolve this? Yeah, that's. I don't think that's realistic. I mean, uh, as I said, legally, I don't think he's done that much. But the fact is that even if he has, I don't see that there are any legal remedies that the press can do to do anything about uh, the president's actions. So I think really this has become uh, a PR battle, and I think it's pretty clear that at this point he's winning that battle. Uh, I think the first pushback we've seen really was a couple of weeks ago when some 350 newspapers all editorialized about the importance of a free press, the importance of, of their being independent to say what they want and to uh, push back on Trump's uh, attacks on the press. And of course, he called that collusion. 
because they all did it at the same day. They didn't say the same thing, so there really was no collusion whatsoever. And it was interesting because I think the president totally didn't understand the irony of his using the word collusion to attack the press. There are other things that can happen. I mean, I think some of the the big media outlets, uh, the New York Times, CNN, have had advertising campaigns. But I think uh, you have to be very careful because as best as I can see, any advertising campaign that basically names the president or clearly speaks about the president, therefore becomes simply a political football and is going to be viewed as, as part of the, in the polarized context that we live in and therefore isn't really going to move the needle because the diehard Trump supporters are going to be against it as soon as they perceive these uh, public relations pitches or advertisements to be an attack on Trump. So they, if you're going to do a campaign, a PR campaign, which I think the media has to do, it really has to be very, very carefully drawn up, not be about President Trump, not be about his attacks, but be about the importance that everyone in the country feels about freedom of the press, freedom of expression, and I think needs to emphasize local news because local news takes it away from the kind of polarized political atmosphere we're in. And most people love their local newspaper and their local TV station. They get much more respect and love than the national outlets, uh, which are viewed as, as too liberal, et cetera. So I think um, that's what's needed, and I think it has to be done very carefully. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping it will be done soon. Bob, where does this take us for the November elections? I mean, we have upcoming the, the speech of President Obama uh, trying to say that, you know, we, we should be united. It seems that people have labeled Trump as the great divider. You know, he, even yesterday in his uh, performance at Shanksville, it was painfully obvious how difficult it is for him to stay on script. What's going to be happening in terms of how he has an effect on the November elections? There's no way to predict that. I mean, certainly you can follow the news stories or the polls that suggest that uh, public attitudes are trending one way or another, but ultimately it comes down to race by race, candidate by candidate. And uh, I think that uh, sort of the, the noise over the presidency and the continuing drama certainly will be an environmental factor that affects all of them. But uh, ultimately, it'll be up for voters to decide if they've simply had enough of the circus. I mean, after a while, even a, a good circus gets old and, and just too jarring to uh, to listen to. And in terms of what the press might do, I, you know, I'd agree with George that it really does come down to almost a, a public relations issue. The various threats that have been made and talk about loosening up the libel laws or opening up the libel laws or whatever he means by that, or uh, asking rhetorically whether or not broadcast licenses should be pulled and uh, suggesting investigations, all of the stuff that we see day in and day out rarely, if ever, amounts to anything. All it really comes down to is the fact that this office holder is displeased with people who criticize him and particularly those in the press who criticize him. And I, I, I really think that the only thing that journalists can really do uh, is not to, as you asked earlier, to ignore the president. The president, by definition, makes news when he makes public pronouncements, even ones of just 144 characters. And so it's really just a matter of, of 
covering the news, but really focusing on the business of journalism, um, really doing old shoe leather type journalism, using the facts. What Bob Woodward did, as a matter of fact, uh, which is long form old style journalism. And I would also agree with George that uh, focusing on local coverage is critically important as well. And it's something that gets overlooked in all of the drama about the White House. You know, jumping off of what Bob said. But let me interrupt for a second and get back to the Woodward book for just a sure. second. You know, how do you work with people within your administration that are quoted as saying the kinds of things that are being said? I mean, Woodward comes here with a significant amount of credibility. His first book was considered to be uh, one of the contributing factors to Nixon's downfall, and there have been rumors that this is the beginning of the end for Trump. But how does Trump deal with people like Madison Kelly that— you know, deny these things, or for that matter, Cohn and Porter, but yet there they are in Woodward's book. Well, I, you know, I think that uh, Trump has uh, developed a track record of uh, retaliating against people in his inner circle and or outside his inner circle as well, who displease him or who criticize him. If he believes that these things were uh, really said by people in his administration, uh, there may be an effect, but it's it's hard to say. Uh, Frankly, I I read the statement in Woodward's book uh, where Defense Secretary Mattis supposedly said that Trump is the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader. But frankly, I think that does a real disservice to fifth and sixth graders based on what else is in the book. Um, you know, I think they generally have a better understanding of uh, how government is supposed to work. But when these things do get printed publicly, and now the the public record on this is getting to be so extensive, if there is retaliation against people inside the administration, it's really hard to say who will be left to serve. Bob, what's your thought? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I I don't think one can, uh, if he really believes that these guys said these things, I can't imagine they're long for the administration. What do you think the possibilities are of Trump getting the kind of education that he needs to run the government? I mean, there are obvious things that have been said that he said that the rest of us just kind of scratch our heads and think, do you even begin to understand the basics of how a government works? Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's education. I mean, I think basically. I mean, this is, goes way beyond my uh, my expertise as a lawyer. But I mean, in a brief sentence, I think he's just as a businessman, as the head of his company, used to getting his way, no matter what, uh, with his colleagues and certainly with his opponents or enemies, uh, just by by uh, uh, you know blustering and by uh, by spending money. He basically has a culture of getting his way. And that's what he believes he's entitled to do as president. He doesn't understand that our system is based on a system of checks and balances where you have two other, if not three other, equal uh, branches of government. And he wants to ignore that. And it's in his interest to ignore it, it seems. And that's the way he perceives his job and his role, because that's what he's used to. Yeah, it's difficult to tell from a distance whether or not the president is educable. Uh, I think the evidence that we really have to go by is what has been published in the Woodward book and elsewhere, and even by the president's own words, uh, suggesting that he has no interest in being educated. I mean, one example of that really is in, in, in his saying that he wants to open up the libel laws. And aside from <laughs> as Bob said, that, that that's kind of a meaningless term, assuming he wants to make it more likely for plaintiffs to win and make libel law easier for plaintiffs. 
the fact is that, A, libel law is a matter of state law, and he can't do it as president. B, to the extent it's federal, it's the Supreme Court's law constitutionalizing it. And uh, the president does not have power over the Supreme Court. And indeed, the justices who he's appointed, I think, are going to keep the Times v. Sullivan precedent that we talked about. But most importantly, in terms of his education, when he was asked in a Washington Post editorial board meeting what he meant by this, he said, well, if, if reporters intentionally write false things, we should be able to sue them and win lots of money. But the fact is that if you intentionally write false things, then you're going to lose and the plaintiffs are going to win. That's what the law is today. So he says he wants to change the law. He doesn't realize that what he really wants is already is the law. So that's a matter of just a pure lack of education as to what he's talking about. And embarrassingly so, it seems to me, for someone who said that phrase many times now, he should have some idea what he's talking about. And by the way, the fourth reason why it makes no sense is that given the way he criticizes people, he's more likely to be a libel defendant than a libel <laughs> plaintiff, and he's going to need the very defenses he says shouldn't exist anymore. So the whole thing makes no sense, which is gives you some hint as to his uh, ability to be educated, I think. Right. Well, gentlemen, we've just about reached the end of our program. It's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners so they can reach out to you if they would like. So, Bob, we'll turn it over to you to summarize and provide your contact information. Well, it's uh, certainly a challenging time. I think one of the bigger challenges that we face is not a, a lack of news, but news exhaustion. You see weeks that go by like this past week with so many big stories and also in the midst of a confirmation hearing for a Supreme Court justice. So much is going on that it's hard to keep track of it. And unfortunately, people tune out when you have this much going on that is unpleasant. And also people focus on just the noise rather than the news. And uh, we live at a time in which uh, the head of state makes more news by just making noise than by actually implementing policy. So the real challenge for our institutions is to continue doing what our institutions were designed to do, and that includes the governmental institutions as well as private institutions like the press. Great. And if our listeners want to reach out to you, how can they find you? They can find me at uh, the office of Davis Wright Tremaine in Washington, D.C. We're available on the web um, and pretty easy to find. Great. And let's turn it over to uh, George to wrap up and with your final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, in talking about the president, you know, people can reasonably differ as to the substantive policies that he has on immigration, on uh, taxes, on health care, and so on. And, uh, you know, I think that there, people have different views, and that's perfectly fine. What I find to be more challenging and more dismaying is the fact that this appears to be a president who basically does not believe in the rule of law and basically doesn't believe that there is a truth or that he should be bound to tell the truth. And I think that's what differentiates him from former presidents, including, by the way, uh, Nixon, who certainly had his troubles and was removed from office or removed himself from office. But he believed in the system. Uh, and he did believe, I think, in the rule of law, and he believed, uh, I mean, he turned over his tapes in the end, and he basically was worried about his historical legacy. And my fear is that this president really doesn't have the respect for the rule of law and for uh, the administration of justice 
that we would expect in a, in a president, and that's what's so troublesome. And I'm, uh, I'm George Freeman, and I'm at the Media Law Resource Center, which you can find online at medialaw.org. And uh, we have a website that explains what we do and um, you know, gives out all our positions, conferences, papers, etc., Uh, for the public uh, and for members in particular to read. Great. Well, thank you very much. Much thanks to George Freeman and Bob Conrevere. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at thelegaltalknetwork.com where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. Remember, we're soliciting for co-hosts, so submit your application. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.